And we only have this and one more lesson left in these uh, pictures from Kings. And I had an alternate title that I, I wanted to use, which was How to Live on a Sinking Ship. And I think that's an appropriate title, but I thought maybe that would be a touch confusing when people saw that on the website and think I'm going to talk about ships and things like that, and I better just not do that. But the idea of what we're going to look at tonight in chapters 21 through 23 of Second Kings is a picture that God is giving about how do you live in a culture, in a world that is in complete darkness? What do you do when now that you have a people that are clearly rejecting God? Well, how should the righteous live? What are they supposed to do going forward in such circumstances? And so title is light in total darkness, parenthesis, how to live on a sinking ship. <laughs> and uh, we're going to look at how that's presented for us in, in this text. In 2 Kings 21, you are uh, given the picture of Manasseh. And Manasseh is described really for the first nine verses, the whole of what the the king's author wants you to know about him is that he reverses everything that his dad did. Now remember, his dad is Hezekiah. Hezekiah had uh, done some of the best things for Judah that they had ever had. You have Hezekiah uh, even connected back to David and the good that he had done and tearing down high places. And he did more good in terms of reforms than any who had been before him. His son Manasseh shockingly comes on the throne and does the exact opposite. And all that you read about from, from verse 2 all the way through verse 9 is just everything that he undid. Verse 3 says he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah's father destroyed and erected the altars to the Baal and made the Asherah. And just goes on and on and on describing the altars that he puts in, the idolatry that goes back into the temple of the Lord, just continues to give this picture. The description is so stunning that in verse 3 as well in verse 11, the text confirms to us that the wickedness that you have Manasseh committing is so bad that it's worse than the nations who lived there before Judah and Israel were even there. They're considered worse than the Canaanites that even lived on the land before God brought the people of Israel in. And the wickedness is even compared as equal to the sins of Ahab. And we have seen with Ahab that he was the worst that Israel ever had. And now Manasseh takes that mantle upon himself for the southern nation of Judah and is, is just as bad. I think verse 16 really underscores the situation uh, the most. In verse 16 it reads, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Never mind the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And I just want that to kind of resonate for me and think about how much innocent blood do you think he had to shed to the point where God would say he filled the capital city of Jerusalem from one end to the other? That had to be a lot. Uh, a lot of innocent blood being spilled 
by, by this king. And so that really gives you a picture that at this point, the nation of Judah is completely gripped in darkness. And I want you to realize, you will notice as you look at those first 18 verses, there's not a single thing good said about him. It doesn't tell us anything about what happens later in his life. Nothing about a reversal, nothing about a repentance. There's absolutely nothing good. The whole point of the king's author is to show you it is bad. It is complete darkness. The next picture as the chapter rounds out is his son Ammon. He's no better. He's just like his dad. He carries on the same policies, carries on the same wickedness. It is wickedness from end to end. And there just appears to be no hope to the point that the message that is given here is back in verse 13. God says, I'm going to stretch over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Now, that's a pretty vivid image on a number of levels. One. I'm going to put the measuring line of Samaria against Jerusalem. Okay, well, what happened to Samaria? It's gone. And I'm going to put the measuring line of the house of Ahab against it. How'd that go for Ahab's household? Utterly destroyed, nothing left. And if those two visuals weren't enough, he says, here's what I'm going to do. It's going to be like, have you ever, back in the old days, ever have to wash dishes by hand? <laughs> In my mom's apartment, we didn't have a dishwasher, except the dishwasher's name was Brent. And <laughs> you took the wet dish, and you got your towel, and you wiped it from end to end. So there was nothing left on it. And God says, that's what I'm going to do with the city. There's not going to be anything left. I'm going to wipe it like a dish being cleansed and so that there's nothing left on it. And so the die is cast. The wickedness is set. There is no changing. God is not going to avert the wrath that he now has coming against Jerusalem. And that's what verses 12 through 16 are essentially describing. Now, what makes all that interesting is there's not a lot of time spent with Manasseh nor with Ammon, except setting forward how bad things are. And now a significant portion comes along in chapter 22, where now we have a man named Josiah, who is eight years old when he begins to reign. And you will notice in verse two that he is compared favorably. He is going to do right compared to David, kind of like Hezekiah is almost as if Hezekiah again has returned. And here is now someone who cares about God after generations of wickedness that remember Manasseh reigns for 55 years. And his son, then only just a couple of years, you have 57 years going on of wickedness. I can't do math very well, but that'd be like since the 1970s or something like that. You had horror until now. That's a long time. And now suddenly Josiah comes to the throne. He wants to do what is right. And you'll notice that he gives instructions in verse 3 to verse 7 that he wants to have the temple repaired. Now that should be fairly notable to us. Because the last time we had even a good king who seemed to care about things and, and consider its improvements is 75 years ago. And to push that even a little bit further, the last time we read about anybody even wanting to collect money from the people to repair the temple was back in Joash. That's about 217 years ago at this point. 
And so even though you might have flipped only four pages, it's been a really long time since anybody cared about the temple at this point. 217 years since the last recording of any kind of repairs. And it's been 75 years now at this point since Hezekiah died. And so it's been a long time. Imagine a building, if you just let it sit there for 75 years, how's it going to look? Never mind if it's been sitting there for 217 years. It's in pretty bad shape. And so you have then the neglect of the temple. And something really interesting happens as this accounting begins and the people begin to work on on the temple. And you'll notice what we're told in verse 8 that Hilkiah the high priest says to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. That might be the starkest statement about how much spiritual darkness there is. It's not like, oh, we found the book of the law in this really unusual place. And who would have ever figured it would have been there? No, it's like somebody actually walked in the temple today. And lo and behold, there's the book of the law collecting dust that apparently nobody has looked at for generations. And so here the high priest says, we have, we have the book of the law. And so they go to King Josiah and it is read before the king in verse 10. And verse 11 says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And we're told in verse 13, he says, we need to get a priest, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. You notice the great humility that the king, hearing the, the book of the law, tears his clothes, a, a statement of shame and mourning and distress. And immediately it says, we need to get a prophet, a priest. Somebody needs to inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for the nation because the wrath of the Lord is great. He draws the right conclusion. And we have to be impressed by that. Because he doesn't say, well, you know, that's interesting. We haven't heard something like that in a while. But he legitimately cares about what God says. And I want you to notice then what happens is in verse 14, they're able to find a prophetess named Huldah. And they go and ask her, what does the Lord say? Verse 16, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants All the words of the book that the king of Judah had read because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Notice primary message number one is simply the curses are coming. You can imagine like the curses that are given in Deuteronomy where if you disobey the covenant that God has given, here are all the things that is going to happen. And included in those curses is being taken off the land and put into exile. And here is God coming and saying, everything that you heard in the book of the covenant is going to happen. And notice how it is underscored at the end of verse 17. That's not going to change. He says, my wrath will not be quenched. This is absolutely going to happen. And there's nothing that you can do to change it. But, verse 18, 
But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have heard you also, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring on this place. So God says, there's no getting out of this. Nothing's going to change. Disaster is coming. The words that were prophesied of wiping the nation like a dish are absolutely going to happen. It will only be delayed for the time of Josiah's reign because when he heard the word of the Lord, he was sorrowful. He humbled himself. He prayed. He tore his clothes. And because of that response, a little bit more time is going to be granted. Now, here's my big question for you. If you hear the message that God is going to destroy nation and people and there's absolutely nothing you can do to change it, it will most certainly happen. It won't happen in your lifetime, but it is absolutely going to happen. And I don't care what changes are made. I don't care what reforms are made. I don't care what you do. It's going to happen. What would you do? I think it is interesting that chapter 23 opens not with Josiah saying, well, I guess we're doomed, so we might as well just do whatever we want. (laughs) Or say like Hezekiah, well, at least I'll have peace and security in my days. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know what? This is hopeless trying to be righteous. There's no point in trying to serve God. We're all doomed and we're all going to die anyway. Chapter 23 and verse 2, even though no judgment is going to be averted and God's wrath is going to come, in verse 2, the king goes to the house of the Lord. He gathers all the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people, small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Here is God saying, it doesn't matter what you do. And Josiah goes, I'm going to get all the people together and I'm going to have them hear what God says. They're going to hear the words of the covenant. They're going to hear this book. And not only does he do that in verse three, he himself makes a covenant with God. And the end of verse three, all the people joined in the covenant. And notice the covenant is to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. So he says, I'm going to serve God with all of my heart. I'm making a covenant today to follow the Lord and all the people join in. We're going to follow the Lord too. We're going to seek him with all of our heart as well. And then what you will notice, and just for the sake of time, I can't read all of this, but if you just start scanning your eyes from verse four and just scan those Verses, you will notice that it is description after description of Josiah purging the temple of the idols that were inside of it, purging the high places, 
tearing out the idolatry, ripping out the idols and the altars that are found throughout the land. And I want you to notice how intense these reforms are. Verse 13 of chapter 23. The king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption. Listen to this. Which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for the Asherah, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Do you know how long that sat there? Here are these Worship facilities just to the east of Jerusalem that Solomon had built. Now Solomon's all the way back in the late 900s. They're running up to 250 to plus years. Those have sat there and have continued on. And Josiah has the courage to rip those out. Not only that, look at verse 15. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, the altar with the high place that he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust, and he burnt the Asherah. He goes outside of his own nation's jurisdiction, goes to Israel. They've already been taken off the land, but the idols in Bethel, those golden calves, he goes up there and tears them out too to make sure that those are gone. And not only that, look at verse 21. The king commanded all the people to keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. He establishes a Passover that hasn't happened since the days of the judges. Now we're hundreds and hundreds of years back and puts that back into place. The last time we have a recorded Passover in the scriptures is Joshua chapter 5. And now here we are at the end of Judah's life. Israel's already gone. And Josiah puts the Passover back into place and commemorates it as it ought to be kept. For none like this had been kept even back since the days of the judges. Look at verse 25. Before him. There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. No one was more intense about a repentance than Josiah. Josiah was all about, we are going to get rid of this stuff. We are going to reform. We are going to repent. We're going to do what the law says. But notice the very next line, verse 26. Here's the reminder. It's not going to change anything. Verse 26. Still, the Lord did not turn from the, his burning of his great wrath by which the anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. So here's my thing that I want us to talk about then tonight. Why does Josiah go about doing all of these reforms 
when he knew that it wasn't going to change the outcome of God's wrath? Why does he go through all the work and all of the time and all of the effort in tearing every bit of idolatry and worship places and altars, just tearing them out? Why go through that? Why devote himself to the covenant? Why read the law? Why commit the people again if it's not going to change anything? And why does he do it so intensely? And I want us to think about, as you consider that, would we do the same if you knew it wasn't going to change the outcome in the slightest? You're doomed. Doesn't matter. You can keep fixing it, Josiah. God's wrath was unchanged. Why'd Josiah do it? Because that's how much he cared about God. That's how much he cared about God. I want us to see that he didn't serve God because of an outcome. He served God with his whole being regardless of the outcome. He wasn't doing it to try to get something now. Okay, I'll do good things for God now. Then God will maybe, you know, give me something back. He knew nothing was coming back. He knew that they were doomed. He knew that it was set in stone. Prophetess had said it. The law was clear. Doom was coming. Why do the reforms? Why make the changes? Why go through all the effort? Except what you see is that he wanted to do those things not for the outcome, but because he cared about God that much. So what are you supposed to do when a nation is doomed? How do you live on a sinking ship? What do you do when there's no hope, when there's no turning back, when it's just simply darkness, when there's no chance of restoration, there's no chance of reform, there's no chance of of turning the tide, when it's just simply darkness all around? What are you supposed to do? Continue to do what's right. Continue to do what's right. I told Andy in the car last week, I'd written this lesson before they came. And as he's doing these influence lessons, I said, I'm going to be the caboose to the locomotive you set in talking about how you keep doing right. Keep influencing others to do right. Even when it looks like it's not doing a bit of good. Even when it looks like it doesn't matter. Even when it looks like the nation's not going to get any better, the culture's only getting worse, it's not going to do a bit of good. Josiah's in that spot. It's not going to get any better. God said so. Not going to change anything. It's not going to make any difference. You might remember, we did the book of Zephaniah before we came into this section. Zephaniah is one of the prophets running around saying, you all are a bunch of complacent people who don't care about God. True. You see it. The law had been lost in a really crazy hiding place, the temple. And no one bothered to walk inside and see what God had to say. No one cared. But Josiah did. Josiah did. Even in the face of all the evil, even as bad as this nation is, after 
55 years of the reign of Manasseh, 57 years between him and his son, 57 straight years of the most extreme wickedness that Judah ever saw. Josiah comes to the throne and says, we're going to try to do right anyway. We're going to do right. We're going to live right. Even though the handwriting is on the wall and our doom is set. You know, the Apostle Paul said something extremely similar when he wrote to the Philippians. And I want you to think about how Paul did not say, I want you to do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of, well, it's a not so bad generation. You know, you shine as lights when things are just kind of mediocrely okay. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, you shine as lights in the world. Sometimes we can get really demoralized about the sinking ship. And look around and go, does anybody care about God anymore? Does anybody care about his laws? Does anybody even care to follow him? Does anybody care to confess him or wear his name anymore? Look at the darkness as it continues to just grow and grow and grow. And there can be a tendency to say, so what's the point? Why shine as lights? Why bother? It's not going to make an impact. It's not going to make a difference. And you see the message that God gives us through Josiah is we must keep doing right. And we must keep influencing people. Shine, keep shining, and keep shining as God's light in the darkness. Even when it looks like we're doomed, it doesn't matter. It's all too late. What good is it going to be? And let's pull it back from such a macro level. You ever done that in your own neighborhood and go, you know, those people are so far gone. What's the point of shining as a light anymore? You know, those people, they're just so mean. They're so terrible. They're so ugly. They're so nasty. They're in such darkness. And so I'm just not going to bother shining as a light there anymore. It's easy to do. And when you have those moments, I want you to think about Josiah. Because Josiah, you would look at him and go, Josiah, it's not going to do anything. The prophets are running around at this point saying, it's all over, lights out, we're done. Nothing's going to change. No hope. No fixing this. And Josiah says, I'm going to hold fast to the word and I encourage us to hold fast to the word that you see Josiah holding on to. In fact, I want us just to zero back in on chapter 22 and verse 19 and to think about what Josiah does. When he heard the word of the Lord, then the book of the covenant, chapter 22, verse 19 says, he humbled himself before the Lord and wept before God. There's not the ability for us to directly change the heart of other people. I wish we could. 
I think for the first few years as I was trying to do this, it was one of my great frustrations was you can't make people change, and it's really frustrating. <laughs> Naive me. No, you can't. No, you can't. You can't make people change. But there is something you can do is to make sure your heart is just as soft and just as pricked like Josiah. We get so worried about, well, look how dark it is, look how dark it is, but what about us? Would we be so moved by the word of God that we will allow it to change us and for us to act upon it? To not allow the darkness to encroach into us and say, well... There's no real reason to shine his light. There's no reason to be righteous. There's no reason to care. It's too late for us now. And I want you to think, clearly Josiah had that in mind. When the word of the law is read and he tears his clothes, what's the next thing he says? We need to inquire of the Lord. Why? Because the wrath of God is great. It's not like he didn't know. He knew, oh boy, we're in big trouble. And he still did what's right anyway. He still shined. And he still changed what he could change. And he still tried to influence the nation to do right. And he made all the reforms that he could to try to get people to serve God. I pray that we will always let the word of God hit us in that way. So that we will continue to shine brightly as light in darkness. And as I close, I'll remind us, when we look out and we see culture, we see neighborhoods, we see the city, we see situations, and sometimes we just go, oh, it's so bad, it's so dark, it's so awful. Remember, that's when the light is needed the most. That is when our light is needed the most. The darker it gets, the more we need to shine. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we are amazed by your servant, Josiah. Lord, I'm amazed by his courage, amazed by his dedication, and amazed by his devotion to serve you. God, I pray that you would give us hearts like that, that would be courageous in the world around us. She would give us the courage to shine as lights and to not step back to have a devotion to you that will want to shine no matter the consequences and no matter the outcome. Lord, help us to serve you because we care about you that much, not because of what we think we might get as a positive reward. And God, I pray that as we attempt to influence the world, that you would give us opportunities Give us opportunities in the various spheres of influence that we have, in the places we live, in the places we go, in the places we work. And Lord, as a community here, that you would give us opportunities as your people to be able to reach souls. And Lord, that you would send in people who are seeking so that we could try to shine as lights and to show your glory and goodness to those around us. Help us in this effort. And Lord, help us to not be discouraged. Help us to not pull back when we become discouraged by the things that we see and perhaps some of the resistance we experience. 
increase our faith, make us strong, and give us boldness to shine as you want us to shine. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I read Josiah and I was just like, wow, wow. What a person to make a stand like he did in a situation like that. How do you live when you're on a sinking ship? Don't give up. Keep shining and keep shining. Can we help you come to Jesus tonight to turn away from your sins and follow him with all of your heart? We certainly want you to do that. Let us know if you're interested. You can come now while we stand and while we sing.